fact is that these are now kind of mythical figures from popular entertainment and from novels and movies. We've got these terms, and now they've kind of colored our own view of history, of what we think happened back then. So long as we can meet, get in touch with, make the acquaintance of, be introduced to, call on, interview, or talk to people, there can be no apology for contact. Coming up on Word Matters, bounty hunters and a few controversial verbs. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Neil Servan, Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. The bounty hunter is a powerful figure in fiction. We see him saunter through tumbleweed towns and grapple with complex moral codes in the barren landscapes of a galaxy far, far away. The figure is in fact so powerful that its ties to history are accepted without question. But when we look at the history of the term bounty hunter, we find that it's not quite what we thought. Here's Peter Sokolowski on a word that Hollywood built. The world of Star Wars is a visual world, it's a musical world, but it's also a world of vocabulary, it seems to me. And one of the points that is striking to me about Star Wars is that it's this fantasy, it's science fiction, and yet the words that are associated with the storytelling and the characters are mostly pretty common words, words that we know. I mean, even like, for example, there are some words that are made up like Jedi, but they are called knights. And think of the weapons, they're just called blasters, and they refer to light speed or tractor beam, sand people, moisture farm. Parsec. Uh, parsecs, and all of these are real words. I mean, they're all in the dictionary. What's interesting to me is that I think that's one of the things that grounds this story. The sort of One of the things that makes Star Wars so sort of popular is that it's so easily understood as a narrative, and that's because you're not really hung up on vocabulary. You don't have to try to figure out what's a tribble, these funny words that are sometimes part of science fiction. And one of the terms used in the Star Wars saga is the term bounty hunter. And this is important in a couple of points. One in what many people consider the finest film of the saga, The Empire Strikes Back. There's a sort of cast of characters who are bounty hunters who are sent to chase Han Solo. But then in the more recent show called The Mandalorian, they kind of take the most charismatic of these characters and turn that costume and that character or some version of it into the principal character. It's kind of a spinoff. And the thing about bounty hunter is that, like these other terms, I always assumed it was as old as the stories that it evokes, which is to say from the Old West, from the movies of the 40s and 50s and 30s even that would have these characters. I just assumed, well, Bounty Hunter must have been a real thing in the mid-1800s out West. And it turns out when we looked into this that the term itself not only is more recent than that, but that nobody ever called Bounty Hunters Bounty Hunters in the, um, in the Old West. And that is to say that there were men, mostly men, who would seek to capture, they would kind of be vigilantes, right? Seek to capture a criminal for a reward, but they weren't called bounty hunters. When we started looking at what a bounty hunter was originally, a bounty hunter was a reward seeker looking for wildlife and not for criminals. In other words, not a vigilante, but someone who was kind of a freelance hunter. So bounties were put on, for example, predatory animals like coyotes or wolves. And so if you went out into the hills and shot yourself a few of these animals, then you could take their skins back and get the reward, and you were a bounty hunter. That's the original use of this term that we can trace back into the kind of beginning of the late 1800s. 
You were a literal hunter. You were literally a That's hunter. Right. That's right. And But these were more like mountain men than they were like vigilantes. Do you know what I'm saying? They were sort of woodsmen who carried rifles. They were not criminals or ex-criminals or foreign legionnaires or whatever you would think of as a bounty hunter or an ex-soldier, typically. What's interesting is that in our definition for bounty, we give four different subsenses. And sense four is a kind of reward premium, especially when offered or given by a government. And sense 4C is a payment to encourage the destruction of noxious animals, which actually is listed before the payment for the capture of an outlaw. So there you go. It was sitting kind of in plain sight all along. We have to kind of pick it apart to find this stuff out. But the word bounty, of course, comes from French, a bonté, meaning kindness or goodness. Ultimately, that led to a, a sort of a derivative meaning of generosity. And so that became the term reward in English. So bounty became a word for reward or bonus. And so initially, that group of people who were sort of hunters were actually bonus hunters, which doesn't sound that tough, actually. Bonus hunters or reward hunters, that's how it started. And that's how it was used in the 1800s. And what's interesting is that the idea of a tough vigilante is, unsurprisingly, the creation of Hollywood especially in the 40s and 50s, black and white westerns, they had these sort of more or less stock characters, right? There was the sheriff and there were the outlaws. We had the Lone Ranger was one version of a kind of a vigilante. And these became myths that we told ourselves. They didn't necessarily reflect the actual history. And so there was a a novel, I believe, called The Bounty Hunter. It was published in 1954. There was a film, a western, called The Bounty Hunter, also from 1954. And after that point, that's when you start to see this term show up all the time. And and then the the character of the man with no name, the the Clint Eastwood vigilante character in his films, who was understood to be a bounty hunter, these came in the late 1960s, early 70s. These are much more recent than the actual phenomenon that they depict. It's interesting that the semantic meanings of really both parts of that term are pivoting right from the original sense of someone who is seeking, going out to hunt game, like literally hunting, as Emily noted, seeking a reward for that game that is then hunted. Now it's like you're hunting the person right. to find them. A different right. aspect of hunting that is then happening. You're not necessarily shooting them or bringing them back like a, a rabbit or something. It, it's an interesting pivot that that happened that was really kind of natural and not obvious. In the Star Wars films, this character of Boba Fett became the, the principal of these bounty hunters. Boba Fett, who inspired The Mandalorian, the new series. Now, maybe I'm sure there were vigilantes. I'm sure there were wanted dead or alive posters, obviously, that existed in the Old West. But the more organized sort of profession that this term seems to denote maybe really didn't exist. Maybe they were just guys who happened to have a little free time and and owned a gun. I always think of sheriff's posses as more of a a realistic thing. That, And I don't know if those were actually a common thing in the Old West. Or if that is also a myth of Hollywood or storytelling as well. But you think of the sheriff rounding up the posse. It's not one guy going out to look to be the hero. Right. It's kind of this team effort that's happening. Exactly. And the fact is that these are now kind of mythical figures from popular entertainment and from mm-hmm. novels and movies. We've got these terms and now they've kind of colored our own view of history of what we think happened back then. Maybe that expresses all kinds of other things like prejudice or just fantasy. Well, this is the writer's challenge, right? Especially when you're dealing in fantasy and science fiction, you're trying to create a world that is both odd and strange and mysterious, but also familiar. Knowable and unknowable. Knowable and unknowable. Accessible. And so you've got to try to find that balance. Certain science fiction writers like to just go all out with crazy names for creatures like (laughs) tribbles and orcs and whatever. 
and not using these sort of real-world reference points in their writing. And so with Star Wars, you've made the point that take this familiar narrative, this familiar old West narrative, and then just happen to set it in space, in the landscape of space. And you've got these ideas of rebellion and and justice and avengement. Those are very familiar things that we know on our planet in our real life. And then they put it out in this outer space setting and it has kind of new gravitas to it. And so it's interesting how the selection of language can often decide how familiar that otherworldly narrative is going to be. What's interesting about Orc that you mentioned, though, is that Orc was actually taken from older English. Is it? Really? And, and of course... Yeah, Tolkien, of course. Yeah, Tolkien was a professor of philology. Now you say it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Tolkien was a professor of languages at at Oxford, and he Mm -hmm. studied old English. And a lot of the terms that he tried to use were deliberately taking older terms and bringing them back into... Has that echo of familiarity or at least reality to it when taking vocabulary that's inspired from real words... When Ammon started diving into the archives to find this term, we found the term bounty hunters used before the vigilante sense because originally the reward was that you would get a certain sum of money when you joined the service, when you joined the British Navy, for example, in the 1700s, or when you joined the Union Army in the 1860s. And so bounty hunters actually referred to the young men who signed up in order to get their bonus, to get the money that they could send home, and then they'd march off to war. That's what the original use of bounty hunter was, and that's very different from right. what we it's understand so it today. That we, we yep. don't even define that. Exactly. <laughs> but also that practice of the press gangs for the British Navy and the recruiting sergeant in the British Army that would often get men drunk in a village and have them sign up. And that was sort of the old trope that they would be promised the king's shilling. They'd be promised a bounty to sign and join. And again, something that's now purely historical and has no place in our culture. And yet today, Bounty Hunter is alive and well on The Mandalorian and other cable TV shows. I find that I really resent what it's done to the word bounty, because I think the word (laughs) bounty is just a really lovely word. It's about Mm -hmm. abundance. It's Mm -hmm. about bountiful. So I don't really like what they've done to bounty. Yeah, I like, turned it I like into, the idea of abundance and what is bountiful. I believe it's etymologically and, related to the word abundance, yes. right? Yeah. It's this kind of like fruitfulness mm-hmm. to it and to have it be used as this kind of almost cynically used. as yeah. Cynically used, cheapened. Payment, yeah. as, a merc- as a mercenary, basically. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's what happens. The term is now well-established, but it's just interesting that it was well-established by the film industry and not by the Old West. Damn you, Hollywood. You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. We'll contact you after the break with a look at the hubbub surrounding contact as a verb. Word Matters is a production of Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for the word of the day, a brief look at the definition and history of one word. Available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub 
at nepm.org. I'm Neil Servin. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. When a common word is used in a way that sounds technical or jargony, people tend to get all ruffled. There are charges that the use is an error or new. Often enough, though, there's no error and the castigated use is actually older than the more familiar one. Next up, Amon Shea on contacting and impacting. Here at Merriam-Webster's, we are, it is safe to say, all of us, a bunch of card-carrying descriptivists, by which is meant that we view our mandate as describing the language rather than prescribing the language. Those are the prescriptivists. They are our sworn and mortal enemies. <laughs> and basically... We're friendly with the prescriptivists, but we have this very different view on language. And we don't invite them to our parties. We don't ever <laughs> oh. invite them to our parties. But every once in a while, I have to say, you come across a prescriptivist who says something, and it's just so well done that you got to say, like, man, you know, this guy's he's our enemy, but i got to say, I really like the cut of this guy's jib, you know? <laughs> and that happened to me not long ago. When I came across... And, You've been fraternizing and, with the other Well, it's safe, because the guy's been dead for many decades. In the earlier part of the 20th century, there was a man who was a, an executive at the Western Union Company. His name was F.W. Leneau. And he wrote a memo to his staff. And it was a work of such passion and such moral indignation that it almost, though not quite, made me reconsider my position on this word. And the word in question was the word contact, which used to be a big thing. People didn't like to say contact me or contact somebody. That was a big no-no. You can either keep listening to find out why or you can ask your grandparents. But Leneau wrote this memo to everybody in Western Union, and it was as follows. Somewhere there cumbers this fair earth with his loathsome presence, a man who, for the common good, should have been destroyed in early childhood. He is the originator of the hideous vulgarism of using contact as a verb. So long as we can meet, get in touch with, make the acquaintance of, be introduced to, call on, interview, or talk to people, there can be no apology for contact. <laughs> he feels strongly about this. I admire this man's passion. I think his position is totally absurd and baseless, but I do really applaud the passion that he brings to the table here. Well, I think also the phrasing of the passion. Yeah. Passion well executed. Yes, exactly. And do you guys ever still get this? Because, you know, I mean, I've seen up until 2000, I still have come across this admonition in the fourth edition of The Elements of Style that was published in 2000. It still has an entry for contact. And it says, hmm. as a transitive verb, this word is vague and self-important. Do not contact people. Get in touch with them. Look them up. Phone them. Find them. Meet them. This is still kind of a thing for some people, right? I think it's still a little bit of a thing. It's strange, though, because, I mean, to me, it feels almost ubiquitous to hear contact as a verb. I mean, you look on websites, and there's always a link that says, contact us. Or I haven't looked at it, but I wonder if there has been a significant shift in its acceptance since the advent of the iPhone, or maybe smartphones generally, because of the, your contacts, the people who you know, that your phone knows you know, or mm -hmm. who your phone believes you know. Because yeah. sometimes I don't know all of them. That's, that's They're question. called your contacts. Now, that use of mm. a noun contact mm. seems more new to me. But right. I don't think it is, right? Isn't that right. where the verb comes from? Yeah, the uh, noun is earlier. The, the earliest use of a noun was the union or junction of surfaces. And that comes up in the early 17th century. Noun mm -hmm. use definitely preceded 
verbal. But how about the noun is referring to a person? You know, I don't know. You, yeah. The sense that people complained about up to get into communication with, to get in communication with, we have that as sense to be as a verb. That comes up in the early 1920s, I think. They get in touch with somebody. And one of the things that I love is I don't think that it's just become accepted since the advent of the smartphone because we have a lovely usage note from our Dictionary of English Usage, which was last published in 1989. So this is well before the advent of smartphones. And the editors of this wrote, the use of contact as a verb, especially in sense to be, meaning to get in touch with, is accepted as standard by almost all commentators except those who write college handbooks. <laughs> it's kind of a nasty dig at the college yeah. handbook crowd. But I think is in fact, accurate. The word has been widely accepted for a number of decades. Yes, but I do wonder if it's made it more acceptable because yeah. I do think that two decades ago, I was hearing more of an objection. But who knows, sure. could have just also developed, finally reached that status where it's no longer objectionable, which is what typically happens to all of these, right. all of, of these words that are much despised. Well, familiarity breeds content. Right. It does, except there are some cases where we still haven't quite gotten around to it. Like, there are ones, for instance, impact is, impact. Um, is a similar case. It's a similar sounding, even looking word. And we still hear people say impact is not a verb. But mm -hmm. far fewer than used to. Far fewer than used to. But when you consider that impact has actually been a verb since 1601, it's still, that's a very long tail on people <laughs> claiming something that is not, in fact, true is an absolute rule. It's a weird thing that some people get into, but not only is, is impact been a verb for well over 400 years, but it was a verb for about almost 200 years before it even became a noun. One of the problems that people have with impact is they like to say, well, it's not properly a verb. When you look at the early verb use, it's all about problems involving teeth and bowels. It was get technical. It was jargony. It right? was it jargony. Was Jargony in a way you don't really want to and talk gross. about that much. <laughs> jargony and gross. So I don't think it was the jargony gross necessarily that made people think this wasn't a word. We just have this weird kind of thing sometimes with transitive verbs. Sometimes people will be uncomfortable with a verb used in a transitive sense, and that's interpreted as that's not a verb. And in some cases, we see people try to actually distinguish between them, like it was a case with grow. Do you guys remember grow? Transitive grow was a big deal. This is a great one for today because people used to blame this on Bill Clinton. And I have to say, it's interesting to me that it used to be a thing that the American people spent a good amount of time complaining about the president's use of what was seen to be an intransitive verb in a transitive manner. This used to be what we complained about. It feels a little innocent now. But anyway, people used to blame Bill Clinton for saying, we need to grow the economy. Mm -hmm. People would go, oh, my God, you can't grow the economy. Mm -hmm. It's not a transitive verb, you it's not fool. A, it's not a tomato. First of all, Bill Clinton wasn't the first one to say grow the economy. Other people did, but he popularized it. But people would say, okay, it's not a transitive verb. And other people say, well, it is a transitive verb, but only if you're talking about crops. Only literally. Right. And then other people said, well, what about beards? And they said, okay, well, grow is a transitive verb, but only if you're talking <laughs> about tomatoes or beers. And you can't grow the economy. And it's kind of like, you know, once you start the transitive ball rolling, it's really hard to stop. I can see part of the objection possibly being that the subject of the economy, you know, there's this whole political spectrum of people who think the economy should be left alone laissez-faire economics. And so if you're growing the economy, a person is having an active hand on something. And so the expression in language is that we are putting our hand on the scale or something. 
There's an idea behind that. If we make it analogous to growing plants, growing hair, there's like an active agency that I think sure. an idea that people just don't kind of object to in its own right. And so objecting to the language behind it is kind of this indirect way. Of right. Neil, are you suggesting that ideology would then affect a person's regard <laughs> I, for language <laughs> development? I've heard this happening. <laughs> I, I don't know if it really happens. I've never yeah. seen it in the wild. You know, I think the thing about transitive verbs, though, is it's kind of like being transitive is like being pregnant. You can't just be pregnant on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and you can't just be <laughs> transitive for tomatoes and beer. You're either transitive or you're not. And once we open the transitive gates, the economy can be grown. Well, the shift uh, from literal to figurative is such a natural progression for a verb to take semantically, it's sure. just, or for any word, actually. That is always what's going to happen. It's kind of shocking when a word does not take on figurative use. Right. The thing is, language still is a habit. So, for example, I don't use impact as a verb just because I didn't grow up hearing it or it was disparaged around me enough that I wouldn't die for your right to do it. I just choose not to do it. Grow your business seems pretty idiomatic now. But there's other examples like access, for example, which similarly is a noun and a verb. And as a verb, it only dates to the mid-20th century. And yet nobody complains about that. People still complain about impact, but not about access. And again, I think it's familiarity. I think we have heard this five times a day only in the last couple of decades, but that's enough. That's certainly plenty for language to change. And so access, for example, is a full-fledged verb now, and nobody complains about it. And yet when I used it as a verb in an academic article 25 years ago, it was crossed out and in red ink, the editor wrote computer jargon. And so it was refused then, and I can't imagine anyone refusing it today. That has something to do, I think, with what computer jargon has become. So sure. much of computer sure. jargon has become the language of everyday discourse. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I feel like the best thing that impact has going for it is actually a very important thing, that it steps in where the word effect is brings great terror upon mm. people because they don't know which effect to use because effect and effect with an E or <laughs> with an A sound exactly the same. They have these overlapping meanings. One's typically a verb, one's typically a noun. But if you don't know which one to use, if you're looking for the verb, you can just say impact. Oh, interesting. Sure, that's great. It's got Definitely. the vision of being a little more uh, of a powerful verb too, you know, than effect. You can see the, the dent going in the wall or something That's like right, that. That's right, or the you tooth pressing up against the other tooth. pressing up the other tooth. It gives you the added benefit of knowing that there's a higher chance that somebody in your audience is sitting there grinding their teeth <laughs> when you talk. I mean, you can't put a price on that. <laughs> Let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us on Apple Podcasts or email us at wordmatters at merriam-webster.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by Adam Maid and John Vosey. For Neil Servan, Amon Shea, and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.